Hello, hello. Welcome to the Leading Women in Tech podcast. How are you doing? How's July treating you? The sun is well and truly shining here. Always a miracle in Scotland. (laughs) Not a lot's been going on. It's kind of a nice, quiet summer. So all's looking good. Today, though, we're talking about another very important topic, which is around inclusive leadership, a topic dear to my heart, and I know it's dear to the hearts of many of you listeners. And so I had to invite on the extraordinary Jane Yang to talk about her journey and her wisdom around creating more inclusive senior leadership. Jane is an engineer without borders, her phrase. (laughs) She optimizes for positive impact as an intrapreneur and has been a leader in organizations across multiple industries, including humanitarian crisis response, management consulting, a smallholder, farming, agriculture, community development, financing, and small tech. I mean, this woman is extraordinary. Just even our little chat before we hit record earlier today, she was telling me about how she worked in Africa for a while as well. I mean, this woman simply is extraordinary. And it's that extraordinariness that helps her really talk about inclusion, as you're going to hear today. She's a proud child of immigrants, and Jane holds a bachelor's in chemical engineering from Princeton, so she's a proud child of immigrants with an extraordinary background too. And she is all about creating sustainable energy solutions, engineering biology, and creating better tech. I mean, this woman is talking about all the things that are here to make the world a better place. And of course, in her personal time, she enjoys playing strategic board games with friends, cooking a delicious meal in her home kitchen. Oh, right there with her, I have to say. Reading, she's a rock climber too. Knitting, I personally can't do that one. Gardening and organizing of all kinds. This is the kind of women that all of us need in our lives. So without further ado, let's get Jane on the show. You're listening to the Leading Woman in Tech podcast, where we talk about real leadership and what this means for the world of tech, the techniques, tips, and strategies you can use to become a standout leader. I'm your host, Tony Collis, tech leadership coach, strategist, and coffee lover. And in each episode, I share my best insights designed to make your success not just simple, but inevitable. Whether you're on the way to the C-suite, an emerging leader, or a budding entrepreneur, this is the podcast you need to become a lit-up leader and turn your tech passion into a career you love. Hi, Jane. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'd love for you to start telling the audience a little bit about your journey into tech and what has made you a passionate advocate for inclusive people management. Yeah, I, I sort of accidentally got into tech. It was never quite the the goal. I started my career after studies in engineering uh, in the humanitarian crisis space. I was working as a writer attempting to convince governments and wealthy individuals who had the money for philanthropy that it was worth them funding mothers, for instance, who needed access to health care in order to give birth um, and who were also unfortunately in crisis scenarios, war-torn countries or fleeing from their home countries in search of safety. Uh, that was incredibly important work. I was with the International Rescue Committee, but it was also incredibly emotional work um, and and very trying work. And I realized that I didn't have the fortitude at the time for that sort of of long-term career. And so I pivoted into management consulting for a few years, working for multi and bilateral organizations, helping them communicate and 
convert these massive research studies into something that everyday practitioners, retailers, business people, consumers could read and be able to um, make decisions based off of those findings. Uh, after that, I spent a couple of years working in direct service with a smallholder farmer organized support organization called One Acre Fund, um, which does excellent work in uh, East Africa primarily, as well as some parts of Asia. Um, and that was where I first started to take all of these other experiences that I'd had and apply them specifically to the work of organizational inclusivity. One Acre Fund is an organization that um, is global in its workforce, and that is both a really strong suit, but also, as I think you and, and I and our your audience likely knows, comes with its own sets of challenges around inclusivity and especially around equity and how you are inclusive in an equitable way, um, given that we're all operating under a history of political and um, other sort of dynamics in society. I was there uh, living in Nairobi and working in Nairobi for three years before I came back to the U.S. Uh, where I grew up. I spent a couple, uh, a year and a half working for a community development financial institution where, again, they were working on their own journey. It's called IFF to become an anti-racist, anti-oppression organization. Um, and it, it's there where I think that, again, it really solidified the idea that different contexts, you might have different nuances in the in what equity looks like, but inclusivity at the end of the day, it's all about recognizing that we're all humans and we all have our own different experiences. And that's what, if we are able to really fully understand and appreciate those experiences, that's how we come together to make a stronger organization. Um, and it, it was that, with that mindset that I came into my last job where I was working for a small privately held tech company called Basecamp, um, where I also spent a significant amount of effort working on inclusivity. Oh, wow. That's such a cool journey. Um, I mean, we talked before we hit record, but I hadn't appreciated that whole backstory and like where you started out. That's quite, it's very inspiring. <laughs> um, I'm one of the things I love about interviewing people on this show is the variety of experiences and how we end up in tech because it's so pervasive. Tech is everywhere, right? You can't get away from it. There is no one way to get here. Well, let's dig into this whole inclusivity piece a little bit, but by talking about people management first, because you talk a lot about people management as an asset and how it's different from leadership. And I think that's something that most of us don't appreciate. And I certainly, until we had our conversation, I talk a lot about leadership and how great leadership is really, really important. Um, and management in terms of like the management side of things, a lot of the time I certainly talk about management being the alternative to great leadership. And you talk about it as explicitly as the people management being an asset. And I'd love for you to help us understand why those two things are different and why that's really important from the point of view of a business thriving. Absolutely. I mean, leadership for me is around having that vision, being able to inspire people, communicate to the masses, and to a certain extent, in order to be a really good leader, at times, you have to almost have tunnel vision yeah. about your vision. You need to be able to say, it doesn't matter what naysayers are saying or, or what other people are suggesting should be you know, the, the thing that we're also focusing on. This is ultimately what we are trying to do in service of. And, and so sometimes people 
might misunderstand that to say, well, it is the most important thing, leadership, and everything else comes secondary to it. And, and I would actually argue that in order to be able to be a good leader, you also have to be a really strong people manager. And the distinction there is that people management to me is about that one-on-one work. Yeah. With each individual person on your team, understanding what makes them tick, what are their personal development areas, what are their core competencies and strengths that they bring so that you can understand how all the different puzzle pieces in your organization and your team fit together. The people management is about the motivation, right? How do you convince every single person in your organization to believe in that vision? How do you bring them on board? It's about empathy right? Beyond compassion, how do you, how do you empathize with the experiences that someone in a very different position than you as a leader of an organization has? And it's creating the pathways for careers or understanding that for some people, their careers might mean only one or two years in your organization, but you're still rooting for them and helping them succeed during the time that they're there. It's about recognizing whole humans. And so, you know, when I say that's being leadership, sometimes you have to have tunnel vision about your vision. With people management, it's actually keeping that broad human view, in my mm-hmm. opinion, about implementing a vision. And those two combined, uh, for me, it's how strong leadership really manifests into an effective organization that is also inclusive. I love that you've described it that way. I mean, I a lot of what you were saying, I'm like nodding my head as you're talking because it's everything I advocate And yet, interestingly, I would call that leadership as well. So it's interesting you have that different nomenclature and there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But I do think it's something that many of us lose, especially if we're a CEO of a company, because as you say, that tunnel vision is so important because, I mean, even doing what I do, I have the haters out there. And you're just like, really? (laughs) How can you hate the idea of getting more women into tech leadership? But yeah, there are. And, you know, you do have to just have that ability to tune it out and be like, no, no, I know this is right. So how do we get that vision piece to incorporate the human element? Because I feel like from what you were just describing, certainly and it's tainted by what I do, of course, but how do we bring that human element into the vision making piece so that we know that when we're activating our vision, we aren't ignoring the people? Yeah. And, and, and I think that you essentially just answered your own question because ultimately every vision involves people. And so to me, I think the way to do that, to make sure that that people management piece doesn't fall away and get forgotten in leadership is remembering that any vision out there is around people. Climate change and saving our planet is about people, right? Uh, any, you know, people who are saying that they want to transform the transportation industry, it's about making it a better experience for the people who are experiencing transportation. And that I think is the crux of it is not forgetting humanity, (laughs) which I, I kind of laugh as I say that. But unfortunately, I've observed that forgetting humanity happens more frequently than it should. Yeah. Um, which is ever. <laughs> <laughs> which is, I mean, it's a perfect segue into my next question about inclusion. But just before we go there, I, I wanted to just point out that I think you, you hit the nail on the head. We we need the people in, in the vision. And I think it's important for the listeners to realize that we're talking about not just the people that we're impacting. We're talking about the people that are going to do that for you. You, 
If you run a company, your company is not actually about the bank account or the investors or, you know, the desks or the office. Not that we have desks and office anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It is about the people that enable you to do what you're going to do. Even me running my own small little business, I have a team. My team is, they may well change over time, but they are essential. My vision, when I construct my vision, I update my vision annually. I have to take account of my team when I do that. Strategy setting, my team gets involved. Like you, I hope if you're listening to this podcast, you don't do strategy set on your own in a little dark room. (laughs) 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 You should know by now, listen to this podcast. That's not great strategy. But yeah, the vision piece, it needs to incorporate all the people. And your people inside your team are just as important as the people you're impacting. Anyway, can you tell I have a little bit of a bee in my bonnet on this topic? And, and it's important. It's so important. I, and I'm so glad that you drew in that distinction and, and including the circles of community that mm. are involved in a, in a vision. Because very often, uh, I, I think that sometimes the people who are doing the work are forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so let's talk about inclusion explicitly then. Um, I know that you've worked for organizations that as you put it, talk the talk on inclusion and yet fall flat when it comes to action. I'd love to dive into why you think this happens. Like why, I mean, it's kind of an obvious question maybe, but I think there's some under, some messages under the surface that I think we can learn from here. So yeah, why do we talk the talk but not take action? Well, I think this actually comes back to the distinction that I draw between leadership and people management, which is that if in leadership, part of your job and your strength is to be able to communicate to the masses, the flip side of that is it's very hard to get feedback when you're talking to the masses, right? Imagine if you're a leader and the people that you talk with the most, talk with in air quotes, are your hundreds of thousands of followers on Twitter, but you block all of their responses or you don't allow comments on any of the posts that you make. You're therefore operating in an echo chamber the value of people management is where you get some of that feedback coming back to you. And that's where I think the falling flat happens is when you break those communication lines, when you break the feedback loops, you could think that this one thing is a brilliant idea. 99 out of 100 other people could say that is a terrible idea. But if you never give them your phone number to tell you, if your door is constantly closed to feedback, you're going to start tripping sooner rather than later. Yeah. And I've, I've also seen this actually play out in terms of just attitude. Um, I've worked places where there was a change in senior leadership and the, the outgoing leader was very much had an open door policy to the point that it stopped that manager getting stuff done. It was crippling, actually, which was, you know, it's too far. And the replacement leader made it known that there would be no open door policy and that the worst thing for them was you knocking on their door. And within two years, that organization started going downhill. I'm sort of surprised it took that long, actually. (laughs) Yeah, you have to create that culture of conversation, absolutely, for us to give the feedback. It's why also that diversity of thought at the table, at the decision-making table is so important because one person may well have diversity of experience. It means they know that what you're proposing is a terrible idea. I mean, we see this explicitly in the fact, you know, a group of men creating a product for women and they wonder why it doesn't solve the problem that women have. (laughs) Like a period products, the case in point, right? Most period of products up until like a couple of decades ago were made by men. And you're like, hmm, why? Um, Bras are another one. 
Sorry. Can you tell him on a pet, <laughs> pet peeve again? Anyway, so I'm glad that you, you brought that one in and we do have to be prepared to listen more. Well, let's go into some specifics here around why sometimes inclusion doesn't work um, and why it falls flat, and in particular, toxic employees. Why do some organizations tackle toxic employees, but others fail to, even when there is an attitude of that apparent inclusion from senior leadership, they do care. Like, why, why do you think that sometimes we tackle it, sometimes we don't? Sometimes within the same organization, six months apart, there's a change in, in behavior there. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you have to really ask yourself where the toxicity stems from, right? Um, you ask about toxic employees, but I would posit that it, in my experience, toxicity has generally started from the very top. So it's not necessarily the employees, it's actually the executives, the owners, the founders, the leaders of the organization from which the poison stems. And this is, I think, where it becomes really important to do a thorough diagnosis and to understand where the toxicity is coming from. Because I've seen <laughs> I've seen organizations know exactly where the toxic source is. And their approach is to try to build a moat of managers around the toxic individual. Um, I've seen other examples of organizations where, you know, they actually have no idea where the toxic source is. And that's because they're trying to figure out if that it's themselves and they haven't actually, you know, figured out that puzzle yet. Yeah. Um, And so they're self-inflicting gaping wounds that might result in, you know, double digits percentages of employees leaving at the same time, but without awareness of why it is that that's happening. So when it comes to, you know, why do some organizations manage to tackle toxicity and others don't? I think the first part is that awareness of understanding where the toxicity is coming from. And the other piece is understanding how strong that source is. Um, In my experience, there are some very, very strong sources of toxicity when there is like what I call a triangle of enablement, where there, there are maybe three people of varying roles, um, each with their own skills and strengths, all with a leadership position and each of them aiding and abetting the other people and making excuses for the others. And so from the viewpoint of everyone outside that triangle, it's very confusing. You know, it's, you, it's hard to understand what's going on. You know, you might trust one or two of the people in the triangle uh, and they're making excuses for the third. And so you're like, well, I trust you. So I guess I should extend trust to the other people. And that's exactly how that toxicity breeds. But triangles are not necessarily always toxic. You know, you could also have a very strong triangle of leadership. And if you do have toxic employees that aren't at the leadership level, you know, being able to triangulate and say, like, I'm hearing these things from this side of the company. I'm hearing things from this other side of the company, combining those perspectives and you know that feedback that you're getting and realizing we've got a source and it's coming from here and we're going to need to make a hard decision about what to do whether that's putting someone who is an employee on a performance improvement plan or maybe even you know firing someone but that only works if it's an employee and not the senior leadership level when it's the senior leadership level when it's owners when it's founders you know it's a lot much harder choice to break an operating agreement to get rid of someone who is toxic yeah, it is definitely. I mean, it's just hard to to get rid of somebody at that level. Full stop. A lot of the time, 
especially if you brought them in thinking that they were the missing piece of a puzzle, which quite often with the executive team, you need somebody complementary to you in a specific area. And they were quite often a hard person to find. And that's let alone it being the CEO who's a toxic person. But let's dig in a little bit more there. But when you said that sometimes the senior management themselves don't know that they are the problem. For many of us listening, there might have been a bit of a guffaw there. Like, how could they not know? If they recognize as the problem, how could they not know they are the problem? Can you describe a little bit about what might be going on there to help us understand that picture? And hopefully, maybe one or two of us will hear and be like, oh, holy heck, that's me. Because all of us have done <laughs> things. I'm not saying you listening are that person, but all of us have done things at some point in our lives. We're like, ah, I wish, I wish that wasn't the person I was. And the best thing to do is to do something about it. Right. It's very difficult to introspect. It's very different. They're difficult to look into a mirror and recognize that it's you that's looking back sometimes, especially when it is um, a negative behavior that you don't want to identify or associate with yourself. Um, I I think that one example um, that I can draw from my personal experience is this idea of uh, institutional racism, right? We, we've just gone through and we're still in the midst of a civil rights uprising and where people are understanding finally what white supremacy is and the, the constructs that have pervaded the professional workplace that are themselves inherited characteristics of, of white supremacist or white supremacy culture. And I've worked for people who understand that at the micro level, you know, they might donate to organizations who are fighting structural racism in their hometown. They might uh, be speaking out publicly on Twitter about it. Uh, But when push comes to shove and you're asking them to look at the place that they built, the company that they have created and to identify how has white supremacist culture or characteristics permeated this space. No, can't possibly be. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a complete lack of awareness. I, I've worked at a place before where they 100% understood that hate speech and harassment exist in the world, but it couldn't possibly be happening using our products that we built. Yeah. And sadly, we have far too many organizations that include governments in this who will condemn others. And they'd be like, there's nothing wrong with us. We're perfect. I mean, that's something that... <laughs> exceptionalism yeah individual exceptionalism and i I, there's we've really got to understand that that just doesn't apply we're all flawed we're all human every single one of us the idea that the thing that we're in whatever that may be is better all of the time it's just it's just not believable it involves people and people are fundamentally flawed and that is an excuse not to do something about it that's the other mistake people make they're like if they jump on that oh, well, it's just a pervasive problem, it's everywhere, then they think, oh, in which case I can't do anything about it and I shouldn't bother. No, you absolutely can and you absolutely should. Thank you for sharing that. Especially, I liked your triangle of toxicity and, and the point there that there are these different components that build into this. It isn't just like, a, you know, this person's behaving this way, there's enablement going on. I've worked places where I've actually worked places where I've, from a previous job, I knew that was somebody toxic. They got a job at my new job (laughs) and the toxicity was like within about a month just went. Nothing explicit was done as far as I know with that individual, but there was no enablement. Like they were just not enabled to be toxic. And I, that to me was a real eye opener because I was like, 
wow, actually just not enabling it, not allowing that to manifest and be accepted and be laughed at was enough to stop that individual to change their behavior. And, you know, a long time later, like they are still in that better place. They learned from that transition, which is an amazing thing. And I, uh, maybe I'm being very naive here, but I like to think that a lot of these people who are displaying toxic behavior don't intend to. But intention is only 25% and impact is the other 75. That's what I say. Yes. And so it is good that most people do not intend to perpetrate structural racism or structural sexism or structural ableism or any number of other isms out there, right? But that has to be coupled with introspection, transparency, and self-accountability. And if those things are not present, doesn't matter what your intentions are. You can still be, you know, the grandmaster of toxicity. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you made that distinction there too. I, I mean, it's an important one from my point of view because personally, I have. Done, I mean, I've done a lot of work. I work around um, sexism. You know, a lot of work around getting more women into tech, and it is a whole lot easier to persuade people to change behavior who support women than those who are explicitly racist. I have yet to find a recipe. I know there are an amazing group of people out there doing this work, but if somebody is explicitly sexist and they're almost proud of it, I would say, like, I don't I don't even know where to begin with such people personally. <laughs> um, I've had a lot of traction pointing out to people that their behavior is sexist and it hurts them. Don't get me wrong. It's very uncomfortable. Hey, it hurts me when I figure out uncomfortable things about myself. Um, we're all there with you, if that's you. Yeah. But yeah, to break through that explicitness, oh, that's a whole level of like, the people that do that work are simply extraordinary because I don't know how to do it. Simply it's It's very emotionally challenging work. And, you know, if you think about organizations that have uh, whatever they're called, employee resource groups or diversity and equity councils or inclusivity councils, any of the above, Oftentimes, these are employees who are taking on extra work without pay. I think that LinkedIn recently just decided that they were going to actually start paying the leaders of their ERGs, but that's only if you're the leader of an ERG, not like if you're just a member, right? So progress, but not enough progress, and but still far better than the 99.99% of organizations that have these councils and pay diddly squat for the emotional labor, the mental health challenges that comes with having to tackle this work that is supposed to be the work of the leaders at an organization. Yes. Yeah. Having been in one of those, set them up. I mean, I was very lucky that eventually it took off and and got, you know, became a job actually, but that's unusual and I'm aware of it. And it is just fully exhausting. And I know many of the listeners listen to this podcast because it is about women in tech. It is about women leaders in tech. And a lot of us have to fight way harder in fact I would argue all women have to fight way harder than men to get to the same level and that's irrespective of any other attribute that makes you somehow different I hate that word but different than the tech norm which sadly is still white and male anyway um what would you say is the number one thing that our our listeners could do could show as a attribute could behave differently and to be better allies to others around them, even if they are in an underrepresented group themselves. Because I think sometimes we need to be better allies for each other as well. What would you say is that number one thing? 
Absolutely. I, I would I would say don't assume. Uh, I, I think very often, and this is where stereotypes come from, our ability to empathize is hindered by our desire to assume that we understand something, to project our own experiences onto someone else, whether they look like us or they don't, right? And if you want to be an ally, start with don't assuming. If you want to be an accomplice, start by asking questions to understand people's experiences respectfully, you know, also respecting if they don't want to share their experiences. Uh, you can speak up and you can make sure that your actions then match your words. And that's how you start building trust, building empathy, and building the ability for a whole group of people to advocate for a more inclusive workplace. I love it. I love it. I would actually like to dig in a little bit there too. Empathy. Um, and and as you say, not assume, because I think a lot of people don't really get what it means to be empathetic. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what it means to really use your empathy at work? And like, where do most people fall down? Yeah, I, you know, I, <laughs> I, I draw a little bit from uh, my time living in East Africa. There's a word, uh, a slang phrase in Shang's Swahili, which is this like slang dialogue that's spoken in Nairobi by the youth. And it's the the word is pole. And what it means is an expression of empathy. Like when you see someone drop their lunch in the middle of the rain outside, you know, a lot of us will say sorry in English because English doesn't really have a word for this. But in, in Swahili, you would say pole. Like I saw that and I know that it was not great. (laughs) And I feel for you. And I think that that's come recognizing not being just a bystander, but if you see or you read or you hear or you in any other way sense that something just happened and it wasn't right. Someone was just marginalized. Someone was just made to feel other, to not be a bystander and to minimum reach out to that person and express your empathy, to acknowledge that what just happened wasn't right, to check in with them on how they're feeling and how you can best support them, to, if you are in a position of authority, be able to follow up and make sure that that doesn't happen again. But empathy ultimately is not just around saying, I'm sorry, although apologies often, you know, if you are the person wrong, doing something wrong, absolutely, you should apologize with all your heart. But if you are a bystander, someone who is just witnessing it, empathy is around not just saying, well, that happened. I wasn't involved. Too bad. I feel bad about it, but eh, I'm not going to do it again. Empathy is around sharing some of that pain and trying to build a better future where that pain doesn't have to be experienced by anyone. That is, I actually want to use the word beautiful, but I don't think that does it justice. But yes, that building a better future where others don't feel pain, even if it's not a pain that you personally experience. I think if we all walk through life with that attitude, it gets exhausting, do not get me wrong. But and that that's why we don't do more of it. But I think if we walk through that life, it walk through life with that attitude more, we would have far fewer problems. Absolutely. And and right now that discomfort that a lot of us feels with sharing some of that pain, the thing is it's just discomfort, you know, and, and Discomfort is not great, but discomfort is distinct from pain, which yeah. is, you know, distinct from distress. 
And the challenge is that right now, too many people are in distress, too many people are in pain because of those people who refuse to experience even discomfort. Yeah, absolutely. Well, are there any other specific skills or behaviors um, that you think we should all be adopting in order to be more aware of lack of inclusion around us? So I think it's the, the awareness of the lack of inclusion that is our big barrier there. Anything else that you could, we can add into our toolkits? Absolutely. I mean, I think that you should also be constantly learning. The, the thing about systemic isms of all shapes and sizes is that they are everywhere, even in the most innocuous of situations, right? You walk down your sidewalk and you get to uh, a building and it has a set of stairs and no ramp, which is a blatant example of systemic ableism. But how many people recognize that? How many people recognize we're in the summer now, so we're not thinking about snow shoveling, but how many people recognize that, you know, the fact that streets are shoveled before sidewalks is an example of sexism? How many people recognize that when you're in your workplace and you have an email product that doesn't allow for signatures, that is an example of oppression? Because some people, unfortunately, exist through the professional world needing to state their credentials up front in order to get an audience. I had that last one is a really interesting one. I hadn't quite twigged that, but I certainly know that um, I started adding PhD after my name because it got me in the room and it irritates the heck out of me to this day, but it does, it gets you in the room, right? Um, that's a, That's a really interesting one. Thank you for that. Let's wrap up with a leadership mindset moment. At the end of each episode, I love to give listeners a simple mindset tip to help them adjust how they act or think on the topic of today's podcast. And so I would love for you to offer one highly actionable mindset shift on becoming a more effective, inclusive ally. Absolutely. So what I would encourage people is anytime you start, you're in a situation and you're not exactly sure what's going on. If you start to hear yourself say, I think, take a pause because you might be assuming in that moment and instead restart the sentence with, I wonder, which is a little bit more based in curiosity and is more apt to cause you to ask a question. I wonder if this might be the case. What do you think? As opposed to, I think we should do this. And so if you want to be a more inclusive leader, recognize that your ideas might not be the ones that need to first be put out into the room. Invite in the experiences of the experiences and the opinions of others who might have closer experiences to the situation, who might be more deeply affected by the situation. Right. I love that. I love that. I love just that simple act of pausing. Recognize that trigger, which is the I think recognize that that's the thing you're doing and I think this applies to anything by the way listeners like when you're trying to adopt a new behavior when you're trying to change something you do figure out what the the keyword the trigger the emotion the physical sensation is that correlates with the thing that you are doing that you know is the thing you want to change and then this one it's the I think recognize that pause that pause alone is so damn powerful and in this one, it can it can be world changing because what we're talking about here is about changing the world. Absolutely. Have you any final thoughts you'd like to share, Jane? 
I just want to encourage people to keep at it. We're all going to make mistakes. And as I said, you know, intentions only 25% of the game impact is the other 75. But the thing is that we all have the next days. So if we stumble today, we can apologize and then do better tomorrow. And in this work, which is work that will continue, you know, as much as I would hope that within my generation, we make substantial changes, it will still be generations of work. And so if you get discouraged today, okay, eat that ice cream, but then tomorrow get back to work. Thank you. I think that is something we all need to hear more because a lot of people stop because we stumble and we're going to mess up. I've messed up many times on the inclusivity stuff and I have to have a good strong word with myself, pick myself up tomorrow and start again because this work is never done ever. Like I think we're always going to be finding it. I think it's part of the human condition. How can people connect with you? Because this has been extraordinary and I'm sure many people are going to want to reach out. Absolutely. Um, I have a personal website, which you can find at Jane Young, J-A-N-E-Y-A-N-G.org. You can also reach out to me over email at hello at janeyoung.org. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Awesome. And I will make sure that all of those links are in the show notes. So head over to your favorite podcast player or to tonycollis.com forward slash episode 57 to grab those links. Thank you, Jane, so much for coming on the show, sharing your wisdom and telling the world how to be more inclusive as tech leaders. I I know that I have learned a lot listening from you and I hope the audience has too. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it, Tony. Oh, wow. That one was mind-blowing. In particular, the leadership mindset moment. I had that pausing to just realize that you're using the word I think that is one I am adding into my toolkit I hope that you have found this as powerful as I did I mean I thought I was pretty good at the inclusion piece I know I stumbled (laughs) but um, I've at least learned how to pick myself back up even though it hurts right and I just but I learned so much from this conversation with Jane today and I I hope that you got as much as I did and so remember whatever stage of your career you're at, you can be more inclusive. You can show a better way. And especially if you're in a place of privilege compared to the person next to you, and that comes in many forms. You can be the person that speaks up. You can be the person that chooses empathy, of real empathy, of listening, and that whole thing of being in their shoes for a few minutes. And be the person that shows a better way. Because remember, ladies, Stay on your tech leadership game. Follow your dreams because the world really does need that inclusive leadership that you are bringing to the world of tech. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, check out how to get more of my help and some free resources. It's where I take what I talk about in this podcast and really help you apply it. Hop on over to tonycollis.com and check out Work With Tony and free resources in the menu bar. Until next time, this was Tony Collis on the Leading Woman in Tech podcast.